Hello there, and greetings to you. Welcome to Duel of the Takes, the movie and pop culture podcast that pins the wildest, most unpopular opinions head-to-head. This week, we're ranking all nine feature films written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. We are joined by special guest Kieran Doyle, a member of the Screen Actors Guild, a writer, director, and all-around quality dude. My name's Nathaniel Martin, and I am joined by my regular co-hosts, Joshua Kubis, Alden Mason, and Jory Boston. Buckle down and saddle up, as I think this might be our most heated discussion yet. My, my favorite thing about these movies is the second you learn that Tarantino has like a big foot fetish, how much you just realize like every scene has, every movie has like multiple foot scenes. Hello everyone, welcome to Duel of the Takes. Today we are talking about Quentin Tarantino, that uh, this is going to be really interesting. We're joined today by guest... A good friend of mine, Kieran Doyle. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. I'm doing I'm doing good. You ready to talk some Tarantino? I am so excited to talk about Tarantino. We are ranking all nine of his movies. The way this is going to go down, we all have one veto. We're going to take turns placing movies. And if someone places a movie in a place that we disagree with, you can use your veto. You can only use it once, and you can use it up until round three. So this should get interesting. Uh, there might be some uh, movies that get placed in places we don't want them because we run out of vetoes. So Josh, you're the madman who wanted to bring the vetoes into this. You can start us off. What is the number nine movie? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I think we should also talk about uh, Steve's Spotlight, which is going to be specific to this video. While we were talking about this topic, uh, Nate, Josh, and I came to the conclusion that Steve Buscemi is not in nearly enough of these movies. So as we go through, we are all going to offer our opinions on what role Steve Buscemi would have been the best in, in the movies that he is not in on this list. Oh gosh, definitely the love interest in every movie. Yes. He's my real life love interest. He's everybody's real life love interest. Nate, I've seen your secret Steve Buscemi shrine. It's uh, it's scary. It's no secret. It's in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> I think Quinn Tarantino is a phenomenal filmmaker. He's made a lot of good movies, but I had to pick a worse one. I have to go with Death Proof. I agree. The reason why I just, I'm a big fan of Quinn Tarantino's style, but I feel like there was a little too much of his style and not enough context for me really overdrawn character development for characters that didn't even last the whole movie kurt russell's great love kurt russell and like any movies and it just didn't do it for me there some of the uh chasing sequences are really well done but i think some of them drag a little too much there's a lot of shots that feel like they kind of repeated for me and i i got bored uh and that's that's a big sin for Tarantino for a Tarantino film for me because I'm usually never bored during his movies. And that's interesting because it's his shortest. It does not feel that way. It is just under two hours. It is, yes, the shortest out of his films. No, because Reservoir Dogs is like an hour 40. Oh, that's true. That's true. Reservoir Dogs is shorter. What stands out about this movie for me are uh, the lap dance scene the first crash sequence and then the final like chase sequence all in all is like three or four scenes in this movie and i feel like the rest of it just is not there to support it it drags a lot i think that the whole concept of this movie is is extremely ambitious i think uh robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino going in and doing this uh grindhouse double feature midnight premiere thing hearkening back to the uh 
you know, the 1970s and those cheap exploitation films and then making their own. I see why this is the weakest of his movies. The only movie that I have lower on my list just doesn't have as exciting highs as the exciting highs in this movie. I think the stunt work in the, the last act of this film is absolutely incredible. Everything is practical effects. Everything is done in camera or like a film of that period they're hearkening back to. I feel like putting death proof like at number nine is kind of just a easy way to go about making this list. So I guess I respect it. The one thing that I do want to say in its favor, though, I do think it's really cool that he actually brought uh, like put Zoe Bell in as like herself like as an actual like stunt woman and just does the fucking like riding on the car shit at the end well right because it would make it would be too stupid if some random like tomboy girl was able to do that she's trained to do it in the context of the movie too so that's pretty cool i also kind of i think maybe nate you're getting to this i i feel like this is in a lot of ways a safe one to throw towards the bottom of the list for a lot of reasons it's probably the one that like people wouldn't think of right away the violence is like pointed in a lot of ways especially there's like a kind of like drawn out death scene with i think uh gosh i haven't seen him forever her name's like jungle julia or something like that and i'm saying this in the context of like a tarantino world that's a pretty intense scene to watch you know i i, I don't know if this is how it works but i i have this not as my lowest i actually had hateful eight as my personal lowest do you want to use a veto to make that happen. Uh, I think I'm going to be more impassioned for other things. So I'm, I'm not. Then don't worry about it, Kiernan. I'll use my veto then. Nice. I also have Hateful Eight as my number nine. I think it's a little overdrawn. Death Proof has a lot of scenes that really drag and that really aren't all that great. But when it is great, it's some of my favorite Tarantino action. In fact, I would say that the final chase sequence is my favorite scene in a Tarantino uh, movie. Whoa. Uh, I would I would second that. I just saw it an hour ago and I still felt underwhelmed. But what is the standout scene in The Hateful Eight? Because to me, there really isn't any. There are a couple of scenes in The Hateful Eight that I would call standout. I would say the scene where Samuel L. Jackson is talking to uh, to Bruce Dern about the time he made his son suck his dick or whatever. Yeah. Yes, that scene. The ending where uh, Kurt Russell is like, where everybody Kurt Russell and OB are dying poison when they line everybody up in the wall and start like breaking down like what happened there are a couple of scenes in the hateful eight that i think the build-up to is much better and while it might not be as memorable of a scene as the final chase sequence in death proof i think that the overall package is much much better i think this is one of those movies that would it have actually come to fruition if a lot of like external factors didn't happen with the leaking of the script i think this is tarantino's ego playing in a lot of ways and like if you say to someone death proof they're immediately going to talk about that final scene. For most about Death Proof is the first crash. And then besides that, I'm like, okay. I think the first thing somebody might ask is be like, what's Death Proof? <laughs> That's fair. Alden, which one are you taking? Hateful Eight or Rosario Dawson in Death Proof? Uh, the future live action Ahsoka Tano. Allegedly. Allegedly. It's pretty much confirmed at this point. I would also agree that future live action Ahsoka Tano goes in ninth place. Fuck. You really tried to bait him there? <laughs> I think we're uh, we're outnumbered on this. Yeah, we are. I, you wasted my veto for no reason. Yeah, if there was a movie I was going to die on the hill for, it's not going to be Death Proof. <laughs> 
That's not a hill I'm trying to die on. <laughs> I will die on any hill. Everyone knows this about me. <laughs> Anytime we have vetoes, Nate usually wastes it first round. Yes. Yeah, the first pick again. Uh, I'm interested to see where we do put Hateful Eight, because even with Death Proof, though, like, it ends, and I think... Um... Isn't the ending of Death Proof just, like, they chase him down, and then, like, it's like, okay, the end, and then they crush his head with their... Yeah, they, they punch him for two minutes straight, and then they crush his head with the stiletto heel yeah but that feels a little more uh, for me like compare that to like jennifer jason lee getting hung i i find her character to be a little more like i would have not minded her getting away with it for me like what was the point of it like her protection and murder let me just say as the person who probably loves the hateful eight most on this list i don't see it getting much higher well if we're comparing the two like character deaths uh kurt russell's character being a stuntman kind of died in a very non-stuntman way which i found disappointing but when you look at the hateful eight death she died like i think the most satisfying way like supposed to be in that in that movie kurt russell's character got his wish she got hung so i think from a character standpoint i think that one's a lot more satisfying also if we're just talking about characters in general i think that every character in the hateful eight even fucking michael madsen's character is better than most of the characters in death proof i'm gonna hard disagree with that because uh I think the cast of Hateful Eight is so wasted. Most of them barely get... You don't feel that way about Death Proof? No, I think the characters that really stand out in Death Proof really stand out in Death Proof. Yeah. I think that there's good characterization, and the the female leads of the movie don't talk like female leads of movies. It's, sure, it's Tarantino dialogue, and you can tell it's written by him, but they talk about things that women would never be allowed to talk about in a film. And this is pretty ballsy coming from a guy like Tarantino. I, I really stand by the fact that I, I just don't think Hateful Eight was a movie he really uh, really would have put his, his horse behind if, you know, the script was leaked an early draft of it um and that pissed him off he did a live read through with um a lot of the people that did end up actually being in the movie and he just said like that would be it he was gonna he was gonna finish with the live read through and then it, it kind of turned into a very tarantino-esque like F it i'm gonna i'm gonna go for this it, while it is fun and some of the characters are great yeah walton goggins is the only character that has a complete arc in that movie in my opinion which is really a shame because there's so many great actors and character actors in that movie, and they almost all get wasted. Or we talk about it too much longer, we are still going to have to place it at some point, so let's save some fire for later. Hey you. Yeah, you. You want to help support Duel of the Takes and look sexy as all hell doing it? Well, we have a great offer for you. Right now, Pierre Arden is offering a special deal on their whole inventory of European-style timepieces and wristwatches for our fans. Head over to PierreArden.com and use promo code NATEM25 at checkout to get 25% off your order. At Pierre Arden, their focus is to design cutting-edge timepieces alongside precision manufacturing, making every watch a true masterpiece to be proud of. I'm a sucker for a good deal, so I bought one myself the Complaiso, which is currently on sale for $30 off its regular price. Plus, with promo code NATEM25 at checkout, you'll save an additional 25% off your order. You'll be walking away with a great fashion accessory and a way to keep time without pulling out your phone. All for a great deal. Again, head over to PierreArden.com. That's P-I-E-R-R-E-A-R-D-E-N.com to pick out a nice watch for yourself or a loved one, and use promo code NATEM25 at checkout. Save 25% off your order. 
It helps the show, and it'll help you make an impression wearing a sexy new timepiece on your wrist. Jory, what is your number eight? This is going to be controversial. My number eight is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Whoa. Alden, you doing it or I'm doing it? What? Um, <laughs> Josh, I want you to do it because you keep saving your veto until the last moment. Wait, I need to hear why, though. Why? Personally, I think that this is a case of me having my expectations too high and getting involved in like the hype cycle for a movie and hearing about like, oh, Tarantino's next movie is going to have like all of this in it. And then I'm like fantasizing like, oh my God, this stuff is going to be amazing. And when it came out, it wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be. And my expectations were subverted in a way that I was kind of disappointed by. I do like this movie more upon rewatches. I don't think that I can consider it a personal favorite of mine as much as I can consider the rest of these personal favorites of mine. And I do want to make this clear right away i'm not putting down once upon a time in hollywood i love every single movie on this list i'm not even really trying to put on put down death proof that's true i do love all nine of these movies this is one of those movies that i think is is tarantino at his finest and and i think this is like way higher on the list for a lot of reasons um nate and i were talking about it the other day this is this is a disney movie this is tarantino doing disney you have these grim fairy tales with a horrific ending where like the woman dies disney took it and made it a happily ever after and in this movie tarantino is taking real events that if you know about what happened to Sharon Tate, you know about all of like what's to come. The dramatic irony is like almost Shakespearean. Did know about Sharon Tate. And that's what I was talking about when I was talking about what I knew about a movie's like production and subject matter coloring my expectations for it. I completely understand that it's like, oh, what if like the dream of like the fantasy of Hollywood never ended? Personally, I think that taking the real life event and making it so that it didn't happen is a little offensive to be honest and i think it's in poor taste her family was in bo on board with it her family fully greenlighted it and actually really enjoyed the premise of it okay well i'm not talking about that behind the scenes aspect i'm talking about me sitting down watching the movie and seeing sharon tate being okay and quentin tarantino's original characters going and being like oh yeah let's hang out well does cliff booth live the doctors are rushing him off like he's not okay at the end of that movie and then he's like he's like no nah, no nah, i'll be good i'll see you tomorrow brother watch my dog like gets taken away and we never see him again i'm assuming cliff booth dies if any tarantino character is invincible i'm assuming it's cliff booth <laughs> that's a good point yeah but like did you feel that with inglorious bastards no but here's the reason i was talking to josh and nate about this when i first saw this movie i don't think i felt offended by the ending of inglorious bastards because it's already so over the top but also because the crimes that are committed aren't erased in inglorious bastards the bastards don't prevent the holocaust by killing hitler but in one once upon a time in Hollywood, the main characters prevent the uh, Manson murders by killing the perpetrators before they happen. Is anyone going to veto? Josh, you're going to, right? I don't know. I don't have a veto anymore. Alden said he wants to see you use it. So I, I think it's either time to see you lose it or you use one of the uh, you lose one of your favorite movies. Well, the way uh, Kiernan's talking about it, he's the one that's debating with Jory a lot. Is he going to use it? That's just because Kiernan's a good guest, Josh. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this movie, actually. I, I, I find it to be pretty um, impressive. I, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to. Um, 
I'm just like, there's other ones that I'm also nervous about, like where it's going to fall. Yeah, I'm going to use my veto to put this below Kill Bill. <laughs> whoa, whoa there, Kieran. What, wait, what are you replacing this with real quick? Wait, 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 wait. Before, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, what are you replacing it with? He's going to put Hateful Eight there. We already talked about that. Uh, yeah, Hateful Eight, a hundred percent. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood above both Kill Bill movies? A hundred percent. We'll get there when we get there. There's other movies that to put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood below that is is really really weird to me so uh, yeah i'm gonna veto it and put hateful eight there one thing that we were talking about a little bit earlier with hateful eight is i don't really care too much about this ensemble of characters because they're all kind of wasted most of them are just kind of cliches or stereotypes uh which is fine because it's a whodunit but with tarantino's writing and the runtime of this movie you'd expect to see more of a true uh, at least middle and end of these characters' journey. You, you see almost none of it for all of them. My biggest problem with this movie, and this is going to sound really pretentious like film school thing, Robert Richardson did the cinematography for this movie. He's one of the best cinematographers in the industry, in my opinion. He's done so many great movies. And with this movie i was like oh tarantino's doing another western he's got a great cinematographer on his back it's like a murder mystery this is going to be awesome and kind of what jory was saying going to be in fucking 70 millimeter yeah that was awesome yeah i saw it in a road show in 70 millimeter so i went in with like okay this is going to be so epic it's a very grounded movie which is fine because i think tarantino does grounded movies well you know handful of characters in one location he knocks those out of the park but there's so much wasted potential and even things like lighting continuity are compromised in this movie to go for slightly flashier shots even though they're all just sitting in the same log cabin for two-thirds of the movie this movie can't really be even questionable for the top five this is one of tarantino's biggest missteps as much as i love it i rewatched this movie twice in the past week if that says anything i watched the entire Hateful Eight, and then I watched the Netflix extended edition where it's like broken up into episodes based on chapter. Like I enjoyed myself on both. I really wanted to see what scenes were added and to see if some of these characters I really cared about got flushed out more, and they didn't, but it's, it's cool. To echo that, like I did see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on 70, and it was like all those scenes of the old kind of footage of the FBI episodes and everything, they play so well. I also haven't met you guys, and I'm like screaming at you, so... Um, this is par for the course, dude. Don't even worry about it, man. I, did, I didn't say I was worried. I'm just acknowledging. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that I, uh, I'm hated. Twice. All right, Kiernan, you're working your way to being another S-tier guest, two in a row. As the only champion for the hateful eight i suppose i just want to talk about it a little more from a more positive light personally i do agree with its placement here i know that i put it a little i put it one spot higher on my list just because i wanted to be a little bit objective about it quentin tarantino has a better western in his filmography i think that he has a better whodunit in his filmography i just enjoy this movie though my biggest issue with it is it has this long runtime for a mystery which i was like really into because i love mystery movies about two-thirds of the way in like in that last hour it just stops you and then it just tells you everything that's going on and i don't think that it's done in an especially satisfying way i do like the part where uh samuel l jackson's character kills bob the mexican as soon as channing tatum shows up i feel like it compromises the entire movie i think my favorite scene of the movie though is actually the flashback to that morning 
and they have Minnie's haberdashery and all that. Like, I actually cared a lot more about the environment that they were in upon rewatching uh, after seeing that scene and seeing like how cool of a cabin this place looked. Like, I would have given that a five star Airbnb, especially for its time. Did y'all do y'all know the story about the guitar that he breaks? Yeah, that it's a real ass guitar, and Jennifer Jason Lee freaked fuck out <laughs> antique fifty thousand dollar guitar oh my god he mixed it up with the prop one and smashes and breaks it so the scene where she like turns she literally turns to the camera and is like and she's yelling like whoa 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 yeah that's real that's her being like uh <laughs> that's a fun little tidbit take that one home and put it in your piggy bank hateful eight goes at number eight because it's called the hateful eight and because they destroyed a historical artifact. We forgot to mention uh, Death Proof. We completely- The Steve Spotlight. I was just about to bring it back up. Yeah. Who do you think Steve Buscemi should have been in Death Proof? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've got an answer if you guys all need to dwell on it for a moment. I also have an answer. For the Steve Spotlight, I think the character that's played by Eli Roth, who's like this sleazy guy trying to sleep with uh, whatever the girl's name is in the first chapter. Oh, yeah. The that should have been played by Steve Buscemi because it would have been way funnier if he's hanging out with like these two other frat bros. But he's like, you know, 60 years old. <laughs> how do you do fellow kids and he's got like a skateboard over his shoulder and he's like how's it doing fellow kids i'm trying to sleep with uh what was her name butterfly yeah <laughs> he says the poem. that's a great spot for him <laughs> my steve spotlight is i think he should be uh the character who i found out his name was jasper who lends the girls the car and who mary elizabeth winstead stays with for the duration of the movie that's who i was thinking <laughs> yeah, i can't believe they never finish up that plot point is she okay no because that car is totaled did that movie come out the same year as sky high um <laughs> No? Yeah, 2006, right? Wait, no, Sky High was 2004, wasn't it? No, it was, fi it was 15 years ago. It was 2005 because it was the same year as Constantine. <laughs> I would probably put Steve Buscemi in the role of the car. <laughs> oh no, you really gotta be on my side to get the full effect. Like a, like a Knight Rider situation. I just want to point out too about that character Jasper. I think it's implied that that character is the same character that that actor plays in Kill Bill 1. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, he does a lot of he does a lot of that in his movies like um John Travolta's character uh Vincent Vega in a uh... Pulp Fiction is cousins with um is he his cousin or his brother I think they're cousins aren't they both last names are Vega yeah and he's confirmed that uh they're, they're cousins yeah on the dad's side oh I suppose <laughs> the fuck? cousins can't have the same last name Jerry you've got some interesting soapboxes I was just wondering about it that wasn't my initial thought <laughs> Alden who do you think Steve Buscemi should have played uh in Death Proof no comment. Okay. Josh, who do you think Steve Buscemi should have played in Death Proof? Alden, did you see Death Proof? No. <laughs> That's fine. It's got cars in it, though. You might like it. Perhaps. It's also the lowest rated one. I mean, it's still good. I, I wouldn't say it's a bad movie by any means, especially since I haven't seen it, but it's the lowest rated out of his nine. A fair point. Josh, what do you think? I think Josh is getting a drink. I think Steve Buscemi should have played Josh's drink. Now we just put Hateful Eight at number eight. Who should Steve Buscemi have played in the Hateful Eight? My answer is uh, Oswaldo Mowbray, uh, Tim Roth's character. That'd be interesting. I feel like Tim Roth doesn't really do it for me in this movie, but I think that the character could have been a meme given like the right performance, and I think Steve Buscemi would have been the man for the job. Yeah, I think like the character was supposed to be like the biggest red herring, and then like the casting of Michael Madsen 
turned that character into the biggest red herring. Yeah, I think you're right. Some some more moxie behind that character would have been cool. Personally, I think Steve Buscemi should have played um, Minnie's husband, uh, Sweet Sweet Dave. Sweet Dave. Yeah, he should have been Sweet Dave. <laughs> this scene where she's like, I know. Tell me your ass is fat. Hey, hey, Sweet Dave, is my ass fat? Just Steve Buscemi turning around and saying. What do you mean is your ass fat? What do you, what do you mean? What are you even talking about? I'm the top scarer in this company. <laughs> I'm the top ass in this haberdashery. Haberdashery. The sure as shit is Sweet Dave's chair. I put the ass in haberdashery. Uh, should we wait for Josh to get back before we move on? I, I've been back, sorry. Josh, who do you think Steve Buscemi should have played in Death Proof and The Hateful Eight? I was kind of like thinking the same as you, Jory, for Death Proof, that uh, that guy that got that Mary uh, Elizabeth got stuck with. I feel like that would have been really good. I think she got stuck with him. Yeah. I think there's like a shot where you just see like his gut in the frame and like Mary Elizabeth Winstead looking up at him. It's a trailer park boy shot right there. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Jory, I'm going to agree with you on Hateful Eight for sure. That's my Buscemi pick. No Tim Raw. In Hateful Eight, Channing Tatum's character, because Channing Tatum was not needed in that. Well, that's that's also a good choice. Would have been funnier. Alden, Hateful Eight, what Steve Buscemi role would you have liked to see? All right. Radio silence. I love it. Uh, what if I told you that he has the next pick? <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. Probably, yeah, I'm probably going to say the, uh, <laughs> you know what? Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> the star. <laughs> yeah. I'm the best bounty hunter anywhere. <laughs> I made your son lick my big black Johnson. I made him lick all over my Johnson dingus. I'm the top bounty hunter in this scare factory. <laughs> <laughs> Them little kids come looking for me. Them the ones you ain't heard of. We got to do a Steve Buscemi's like roles ranked after this Tarantino one. Remember when we thought Steve Buscemi was in a Black Klansman in the theater? <laughs> Well, it's his brother. Brother, yeah. Wait, what? His brother plays the other uh, undercover cop. Wait a minute. If we do a Steve Buscemi role ranking, that means that I have to watch The King of Stanton Island, and I don't think that I can sit through a uh, Pete Davidson performance. It's not bad. I thought it was pretty decent. Right. I worked. I worked. Oh, Kieran was on it, guys. Hold up. Oh, shit. Really? I worked on that. Yeah. Did you catch the suds? Because it was a skeletal script. So they were improving a lot and really hard to gauge how the quality would come out. But I, I heard Judd Apatow worked a little magic on it. So I haven't seen it, though. Yeah, the trailer looked really good. I just don't like Pete Davidson. <laughs> He's really funny in the dirt. I ate Italian ice with Marissa Tomei. That was cool. Maybe that's why I don't like the dirt. Do you not like the dirt? I think it's fine. I don't like it as much as you guys do. All right. Well, we'll, we'll bully you in another episode. Um, I ate Italian. I ate some Italian ice with Marissa Tomei once on set. That was an interesting experience. Aunt May. Oh, yep, Aunt May. Aunt Bay. <laughs> uh, Alden, what's your number seven Tarantino movie? My number seven Tarantino movie is Django Unchained. I agree. Great pick, Alden. Amen. Great pick. What? Do you guys not like Django Unchained? No, I love Django Unchained, but. As a film, it's number seven on this list. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys are like collectively dancing on the Joker stairs right now. Yeah, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> uh, Alden, explain. Simplest terms, I don't find it as strong as some of the others I've seen on this list. In what way? Hey, Alden, I'll have a question. Okay. All the movies moving forward, have you actually watched them? Alden, have you seen Django Unchained? I have, yes. I'm just making sure. What is so fantastic about Django Unchained? I, I just don't get that. The third act is like... Do you really not get what's fantastic about Django Unchained? It's easily the best Western he's ever done. Jamie Foxx is fantastic in it. So is uh, Christoph Waltz. Leonardo... 
Leonardo DiCaprio's awesome in it. Samuel L. Jackson is fantastic in it. Holy shit, he is. The entire Candyland plotline. Yeah, I agree, but everything else that is above this is better. This is a good movie, but the third act is like a screaming halt, I feel like. I completely disagree. I That is an issue I have with it. I really like Django Unchained. Uh, like I said, I love all nine of these movies. So mm-hmm. placing this was really hard for me. I was dancing around a lot. The past week, I rewatched all of these movies at least once. I love this movie. Every time I walk out of a Quentin Tarantino movie when it first premieres, I'm like, oh, that's got to be like in his top three. Like literally all of his movies are so great. But to me, Django upon rewatching is just one of those that has a collection of great scenes, but as a whole picture doesn't really work for me. I like the stylistic choices that Tarantino makes in some parts, but then in other parts, it feels like I'm watching an entirely different movie. I think it's the weakest soundtrack he's ever put in a movie. There's juxtaposing songs. There's random classic rock songs happening halfway through this Western. Then a rap song shows up, which is actually kind of cool. Black Coffins. Oh, that's an awesome song. Uh, Rick Ross is a perfect choice to do that. But anyway, then there's also giant pacing issues, which is something I'm sure we're going to get to with some of these other movies. The pace of his movies can sometimes be weird or jarring or too lingering. But this one to me, it the first act is super strong. So then we get these great montages of of Django learning how to be a great bounty hunter. And that's kind of more of what I wanted to see from the rest of the movie. Him going to rescue Broomhilda becomes the main driving force for the narrative, which is also fine, but it feels like they're two different movies. And it's not just like a, oh, here's one chapter, here's the next chapter, like Tarantino would do in some of his other films. It's not even structured at all. It just, it goes, it screeches to a halt, takes two hours to do what you'd normally do in in 45 minutes, even after the great shootout at the end of that long, long sequence, the movie still keeps going. I agree the third act really hurts this movie for me. Australian Tarantino, come on. Yeah, that didn't need to happen. The Australian thing is lame. Yeah, it's one scene in a third act that otherwise is extremely strong. I really don't know how you guys are going to come out here and try to talk about how the scene where Leonardo DiCaprio comes out and inspects the head, like old Ben or something, the slave that used to like shave his dad, that whole monologue sequence isn't good i didn't say it wasn't good it's a good movie it just deserves to be placed here i just find it really surprising that you ignore like leonardo dicaprio was this leading like hero actor for years and he this was probably the biggest change he's ever done in his career and he becomes one of the most unlikable characters in a Quentin Tarantino movie. The goal was to get to him. The goal was to get to Broomhelda, and he was the last thing that was in the way of right. that. Right. He's the final boss. His role within this, and I think he he's amazing in it. He's great. How great he was created an interesting kind of pacing issue for me a little bit because his absence is like shocking. And I think really impressive that like Tarantino would take that risk and and you're surprised that he dies when he dies. I found myself caring about it less when he was gone. There's like a single scene that's left before he's gone. He escapes from Australian Tarantino and immediately goes and destroys Candyland. No, it feels like we spent a lot of time and now we're at, we have to like get our hero out of a problem and it's like oh shit we've spent way too much time on other other stuff let's just have him talk his way out of it it just 
it feels really quick. Talk his way out. I'm I'm cool with it. If you want to veto it, go for it. Okay, I'm vetoing it. I'm vetoing it immediately. Immediately, you have it. Because you guys have been ranting so long about Django Unchained having a weak third act, which to me is complete nonsense. But if that's the argument you want to use, okay. Let me go with Kill Bill, the whole bloody affair in this spot. Because if we're going to talk about a project being bogged down by one part. I think that we can easily say that Kill Bill 2 in comparison to Kill Bill 1 is much weaker. Suffers from everything that you guys are saying about uh, like slowing down the pace. Yeah, I would agree. Stuff just happen immediately without much uh, of the action that you're seeking in the first part. I think that Kill Bill should go here if this is where we're at. I do like Django. I'm not, I, these are all great movies. Um, I, I really struggle with putting Kill Bill and Django, these were the two like for these two spots for me. So I'm not I'm not saying it's bad at all. Like th th these were the two I was debating between for this area. Yeah, the one thing I like about uh, Kill Bill more uh, than Django Unchained is really how consistent and varied at the same time uh, the movie is. It goes from being this kind of revenge samurai kind of movie to then shifting into a Western, which is really weird, especially when you group them together as one film. But I think it really works. The action sequences in Kill Bill are some of the best scenes Quentin Tarantino's ever directed. And the action sequences in Django are a whole lot of fun, but the only reason they're a whole lot of fun is due to the amount of blood. They're pretty standard scenes beyond that. Uh, but in Kill Bill, you get the gore, the over-the-top Tarantino gore that everyone loves, but you also get some really smart choreography and really, really great cinematography and production design to match. I'd rather watch Kill Bill before Django the whole bloody affair hands down Kill bill is a big commitment <laughs> see i just finished watching it when we started recording and i'm i will say that kill bill is much higher than Django Unchained for me. I don't think Django is a very realistic <laughs> historical, like in terms of I'm walking away and happily ever after that. That would have been All right. If battle. we're going to talk about this part of it, the historical element of Django <laughs> is handled far better than most of the historical elements in the rest of his movies. Realistic? No. But Django is basically a superhero gunslinger movie. <laughs> yeah. But all of what happens in the movie absolutely realistic and i think that if this were in the hands of another director we wouldn't even see half of the shit that we see in django i don't think we would see any whipping i don't think we would see any hot boxing i don't think that we would see any mandingo fighting i think that everything that's in django is there to create an atmosphere of the time period why don't you think you'd see that easily one of the best westerns that has been made in the past couple decades and i think that we're placing it way low i, I think you would see all of that I'm, I'm thinking about every movie i've ever seen that has to do with that and it shows whipping and other horrors of of mankind and slavery yeah i i don't know if i want to die on this hill um i, I i'm just saying because you brought up like realism historical realism all i'm saying is you brought up earlier that you think once upon a time in hollywood's a better movie than kill bill from that standpoint i don't know how you think then kill bill is a better movie than django yeah i think we're we're getting a little lost in the debate itself here uh should we take it down to a vote it's your friends are gonna hate me nate <laughs> it's fine they hate me. <laughs> I think we're going to have to take this down to a vote. Sounds like it's pretty close. I'm voting for Django Unchained at number seven. I'm also voting for Django Unchained at number seven. I guess I'm sacrificing Kill Bill. I'm also voting Kill Bill here. All right, Kieran, it's up to you, man. Dory and Josh hate me so much.
Um, I'm going to put Kill Bill here. No. What? Thank fucking God. And don't think I'm an asshole because we're going to... Well, I think you are. <laughs> you lost Alden in the process of winning over Jory and Josh. You lost Alden because there's an anime sequence in Kill Bill 1. You're literally the leave here. I, I definitely... I, I went back and forth with Django and Kill Bill for this spot. So I'm, 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 okay. I'm okay with Kill Bill here. I, I like that. I'm fine with that. I did too. Yeah, the five, six, seven on my list were literally hopping around each other for like four days while I was making this list. Django Unchained is his highest grossing movie ever. Yeah, that makes sense. I know a lot of people saw that a bunch of times in that. Yeah, I know a lot of people who really like that movie. My dad really likes the movie. Yeah, I saw it like three times in theaters. Oh, so you're the reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's your turn to pick what's number six on this list. Oh, this is like anticlimactic. I'm going to put Django. That's fine. I think it needs to be here. Well... This is where I veto. Okay. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> How high do you think this movie's getting, Josh? Um, you're next, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, but we can't use vetoes in the top three anyway, Josh, so you might as well go ahead. We're at number six, right? I think Django belongs in the top five, so I'm going to put... Okay. I'm going to put Jackie Brown here. Oh, no, Josh. Why Are you, you kidding that? me? What is wrong with you? All right, Jory, please use that veto. We can just vote. Yeah, can we vote? Can I talk about why I think Django's better than Jackie Brown? I mean, you can, but you're not going to persuade anyone. Josh, I'm on your side with Django here, but Jackie Brown is uh, I, Jackie Brown is top three. Jackie Brown is a masterpiece. Oh, top three. Easy. Wait, Alden, you haven't used your veto. You can save Jackie Brown, a black female-led movie written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Oh my god, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm saving Django Unchained. <laughs> What do you mean? Wow, you're a real hero, aren't you? Am I being pressured into vetoing in a movie I haven't No, you don't have to veto if you don't care about Jackie Brown. I get it. It's a black female lead. Josh, all I'm saying is what I was telling you before about being careful when to watch Jackie Brown in your marathon, because in the context of the rest of Tarantino's movies, it kind of like makes you feel like it should be lower than it should we've been talking about pacing the past 20 minutes so but it's I not bad i feel like this was a good time to bring up jackie brown jackie brown isn't paced bad though jackie brown is just a slower movie in general yes which movies i would want to re-watch and like entertainment value wise Django all the way but josh here's the thing you haven't let jackie brown marinate in your own consciousness you saw it today for the first time in the middle of a tarantino marathon this is how it goes you're gonna revisit it next month and be like holy shit this movie is much better than i remember i i think all these movies are very good uh, i had to pick one for my number this was my number seven what okay are we what number is this is this number five this is number six. Oh god so uh I think it's clear that Django's ending up in this spot. I agree. Unless Alden's going to veto. I'm not going to veto. I'm voting Django. Yeah, Alden's not going to veto because he doesn't want Django in the top five. Poor Jory. You got trapped, Jory. Yeah, goddammit. I mean, I really, like I said, I love all these movies, but going blow for blow, Django's, sure, it's a lot more probably Tarantino, the closest he'll ever get to making like a blockbuster. That being said, there are some things in that movie that are really not suitable for all audiences, so I can't say it's like his most crowd-pleasing. Uh, whoa. I think it's easily his most crowd-pleasing. We just talked about how people went back and rewatched this movie. Shannon just said that it was his highest-grossing movie. Fine, that's fine. I I wasn't throwing around the word crowd-pleasing like it was an offense or 
or like it's not like a <laughs> line in the sand being drawn. No, but you said that it wasn't crowd pleasing. We're saying, wait, yes, it is. You said it might not be. It probably is. That's kind of what I was saying. It was a caveat that I was ending to the end of a phrase saying that I don't think it is a movie for everyone, and I'm not sure if it's his most crowd pleasing. I don't know. If- that being said, I think people that love Quentin Tarantino really appreciate Jackie Brown and I think it really stands out in his filmography which is saying a lot because it's in the, the same genre of the two movies he made before it stands out because it's a it's a direct book adaptation not none of his other work is a, a from an adapted screenplay I think that alone is something that's really impressive totally but the incorporation of the characters is so well done yeah and I can't wait to talk about Jackie Brown when it, we fairly put it somewhere higher I'm looking forward to that take a little break we're getting a little heated here we didn't do Steve's spotlight for Kill Bill <laughs> you're so right my Steve spotlight for Kill Bill initially I wanted to say uh bud but then the more and more I thought about it I want Steve Buscemi to straight up be Bill. I agree. Honestly, I'm going to say Chuck. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) I feel like that goes hand in hand with Josh and I's Jasper take earlier. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Bill would be cool, but I think uh, Carradine brings a lot to it. I think it was cool that they cast someone who was making those old Western movies of the 70s to come back and play that guy. Yeah, it's a great Kung Fu reference that comes full circle from Pulp Fiction. (laughs) I would love, um, love for him to be the doctor at the beginning. Yeah, that's Chuck. Yeah, I couldn't remember his name. His name is Chuck, and he likes to fuck, Kiernan. What are you talking about? My name's Chuck, and I like to fuck. I know, I remember. I'm a sick Chuck, I like a quick fuck. (laughs) Sneed's feet and seed, formerly Chuck's. He drives the pussy wagon. Yeah. All right. We're back. God, I can't believe you guys are making me do this. Well, I guess I don't really have to vote because you guys already have three for fucking Django. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But I want you to. I want you to have to say it. Listen, I knew that. Listen, I knew that hanging out with white people would get me in trouble someday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know we'll read our whole lists later, but how high did you guys expect Django to go? Django is top five easily for me. Django is my number four. Okay, so you're two away there. I didn't expect it to go out this place, but it's my personal favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. It's my number one. Uh, Okay, that's fair. Personal, personal, that's fair. It's my turn to go at number five. Uh, Do we want to say who we think Steve Buscemi should have played in Django Unchained first? Go fuck yourself. Yeah. My take for Django Unchained, let me just say before we begin, if any of you name a black character, we're canceled. <laughs> Alden already did earlier. Yeah, that literally happened with Samuel. For Django, my take for him is to play Big Daddy. I think that that would be great. <laughs> big Daddy was my take too. He would be a great Big Daddy. Him hanging out with uh, Jonah Hill at the clan meeting. That would have been pretty cool. That scene is hysterical and I love the way that they kind of frame it oh he likes the scene with the kkk why am i not surprised wait if you replace the hoods with the two little eye holes with masks it's a really funny covid19 joke i don't have the time or patience to edit that but i think jory will (laughs) yeah jory did you also just accuse me of being racist because i don't agree with you yes i did it before too don't worry about it (laughs) it's okay i'm racist every time i disagree with nate about a fictional character i don't say that (laughs) <laughs> bro i literally brought up jackie brown and you're like i was trying to egg alden into going for a veto that's different you're not racist josh maybe i am you don't know you make eye contact with black people <laughs> <laughs> it is my take for number five on this list uh we got rid of Django unchained like i was saying my five six and seven on my personal list i was swapping around a lot 
There was a point where Django was number five on my list. Then there was a point where it was seven and a point where it was six. The number six on my list currently is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I really appreciate this movie and I'm more than okay with it just being at number five. It making the top five was where I wanted it to be in the long run. Compared to other movies, the only other one we've put up on the chopping block so far is Kill Bill. The the reason I would put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood here is it's a little on the sloppier side in terms of Tarantino's writing. I think he's got a couple of really great characters, but there are some scenes that are extremely long and that might be the purpose. It's kind of a meandering story. And obviously, as you can tell, how heated things got with Jackie Brown last round. I kind of like stories that meander, but when the movie escalates the way it does after the time jump into the future nine months, I, I think kind of what Jory was saying about the Sharon Tate thing. If they went more into depth with the Manson family, I would have been totally okay with it. But it's so surface level and then takes over the movie that I, I really don't think it needs to go too much higher. I'd be fine with it at number five. Apparently there's a ton of Manson footage that I just didn't make it past the editing, editing room floor. Did you hear about that? I'd love to see another extended cut then on Netflix. Make that happen, Tarantino. What's the actor? The actor who played Manson in that also played Manson in Mindhunter, which yes. if you haven't seen his performance in that, I don't know his name. Do you know it, anyone? No, I could pull it up real quick, though. He, I mean, his Manson in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is brief, and it's very pre like it's it's very formal this is like manson in jail it is good and i guess he was very surprised to see how little he was in the final production he had a lot of scenes that and they ended up getting cut so that's interesting i i'd be curious to see what the kind of direction and thought process was with that i kind of like that charles manson wasn't a pivotal point in the film uh damon harriman is his name we were talking about before with uh django that like the first half and the second half kind of felt like two completely different movies that's kind of how i feel about once upon a time in hollywood it almost seems like uh rick dalton and cliff booth's stories should function almost independently of each other because cliff booth his story is really the one that gets involved with like the manson stuff i think rick dalton's story is personally much better i really enjoy uh like him being like the washed up actor and then like he discovers that he has like the love for it again and that he can still do it but i think that's the theming of the movie is that the stunt devil does all the work but then the actor gets credit at the end i think that's the whole point like why were they involved with that at all i i think that's the point i think it that's the charm of his character i don't think he drew the line yeah. I i'm cool with it being here too i i, I think it's a really fun movie um the bruce lee scene is really fun leo dicaprio's meltdown in his trailer are, are hysterical and even like margot robbie's pretty good in it and it makes you like really sad for like her fate that's to come but isn't you, you're watching it and you're just like oh what's gonna happen but then the movie is called once upon a time in hollywood the whole theming is that hollywood romanticizes stories but i feel like the the entire theming went over your head my issue with it is that it's the erasure of a tragedy and it makes it feel gaudy and tasteless i think it just hits close to home to you joy because it's like an, a very like a story that a lot of people know where django and inglorious bastards is a more wider scheme i explained it earlier my issue isn't yeah and i'm i'm saying that my issue is that in django and in inglorious bastards and in inglorious bastards do we see the holocaust directly not really outside of the first scene we don't see the killing of sharon tate directly we don't see it at all. The killing of Sharon Tate directly doesn't happen in 
been Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's my issue with it. I think what's amazing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is when we go to the farm where the cult lives, that is an unsettling scene, and you know that. And I think it clearly gives a taste of the I do, but I also think it drags on a second watching. I liked it a lot my first watch because it was a new like tone for Tarantino that I don't think he's maintained for extended periods of time like he has in this moment. But upon a rewatch, I really think that scene drags. What we call the hateful eight effect for Tarantino heads like myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I, yeah, I like it. I think it's good here. I'm interested to see your Buscemi thoughts though. Oh, I have, I have a great Buscemi spot for him. I love Pacino in this movie, but I also love the idea of Buscemi playing that. <laughs> that was You're so right. Well. <laughs> That's a really good one. Yeah, I gotta agree there. He's like, honey, baby, sweetheart, I love you. You're great. Down goes you. Down goes your career. I uh, I read an article about Sharon Tate's sister coming on set during filming and she started crying because of how accurate Margot Robbie was portraying her. She said it was like seeing an old friend. Yeah. Yeah. Robbie is incredible in the movie. I think it's probably one of her best performances to date. And she does a lot with her physical acting and even like the way she like walks and smiles and things like that. Like how Margot Robbie normally does it. I think it's one of the most slept on aspects of the film. Uh, I, a lot of people had problems with her in the movie because she doesn't have a lot to do. Like she's just there. Yeah. The criticism of her having not a lot of dialogue, I think, is just ridiculous because there's so much physical acting that went into that performance. Yeah, the way she put her dirty feet up on the movie theater chair, I mean, it's just... Yeah, speaking of, the most disgusting foot scenes out of any Tarantino movie, <laughs> no cap, I will not hear anything else about this. This was the grossest one. As somebody who doesn't like people like touching like my drinks and that 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 scene in jackie brown where that girl like touches like uh uh robert de niro's drink a little with her foot did i did hate that i really hated the one in death proof too but i feel like this one takes it yeah the death proof one to me is grosser than her feet in a movie theater in all honesty it's not just her feet it's every foot that shows up in this fucking movie oh the dirty hippie feet you're right you're right hers are in the windshield and, and the armpit hair i don't mind the armpit yeah hair. that's hot all right well, <laughs> you're alone here. Our disagreements don't end with movies, but <laughs> Robbie having like throw a bitch a razor <laughs> lines, minimal lines in this movie created like a like an omnipresent, just kind of like she she was like there's an air about her, you know that if she it, it was cool. I it felt very mysterious. It felt very present. Yeah, I really thought the first time I saw this movie in theaters that it was going to end with her character being horribly killed because I did have some context going into it. But I went and saw it with my friend Jeff, who uh, is going to be coming back on the channel very soon. We just recorded a Kanye West tier list, and it's embarrassing. Oh, no. Anyway, I saw this movie with my buddy Jeff, and he had no idea who Sharon Tate was. He didn't know who like half the names dropped in the movie were. You have to. You have to. Do you? And uh, I was like, dude, I'm really worried. Like, right before that time jump sequence. And he was like, why? And I'm like, well, that's the day that she gets murdered. And he was like, wait, she gets murdered? Like, in the theater kind of loud? <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was, like, shushing us. That's what's so cool about it is you feel so, you, yeah, it, it's it's scary. You're building up to this thing. But also Bruce Dern fantastic in this movie yeah screw the bruce lee scene the bruce dern scene is pretty good dakota fanning creepy dakota fanning was in this movie she plays the orange-haired girl that's taken care of him oh is that Dakota? oh no yeah oh no 
Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's Josh's turn. I know two of his personal favorite movies just got placed at five and six. So uh, what's your number four, Josh? I don't even fucking know. Uh, My next lowest is Jackie Brown. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Alden, you gotta, you gotta veto that. The last round to use one, so if you if you have any movies that are lower. But we are going to be talking about Jackie Brown later, and I still think that you are a little too close to it. Are we at number four? It's a top three Tarantino movie? Oh, hell yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's top three for me. Top three, arguably higher. Like, if you had said any other movie, I probably would have, like, been like, okay, I can put that under Django, but, like, Jackie Brown? That's one of the top three. Like, I'm not budging on that. It didn't matter. Or the rest of the panel was going to vote Django anyway. We're meaningless. That's true, but if you picked a better one and we could have made a thing anyways. We're not that powerful. Not if you give up, Josh. <laughs> I almost wait Nate to say that uh, fucking X-Men Days of Future Past was the greatest superhero movie ever made, Josh. I can be powerful when I want to. Over the Dark Knight. Alden, are you uh, you vetoing? Yeah, I need to be careful with what I put here, though. Yeah, you really do. Yeah, your other options are Reservoir Dogs, uh, Pulp Fiction, or Inglorious Bastards. I think there are like two that would be okay. I'm I'm thinking Inglorious Bastards here. Okay, you picked the right choice for sure. I agree. Yeah, man. I mean, going blow for blow there. Those are uh, my number two and number three on my list. Really, I do really enjoy Inglorious Bastards. I think along with Django, it's probably the most accessible of Quentin Tarantino's movies. Really, people that don't normally like his movies in my life like Inglorious Bastards quite a lot. For sure, I think that Jackie Brown is kind of like the Tarantino fans Tarantino movie so for that alone I kind of want to stick with Jackie Brown and vote for Inglorious Bastards here but either way both of these are close to where I had them on my list first of all Inglorious Bastards phenomenal movie which almost didn't come to fruition because he could not find someone to play Christoph Waltz character searched and searched and searched but finally found the perfect guy and arguably there's no one else who could have done it Um, I think it's a great movie. I think it's beautiful, uh, but it deserves to be here. The thing that I always think of when I think about Inglorious Bastards is how the first scene in the movie, well, the first sequence where um, Christoph Waltz, his character, goes to the little, like, French, like, farm and, like, is searching the house for Jews. That scene is so incredible, but it's also, like... It's also like 25 minutes long and it does not feel that way at all. It feels much shorter. Like every time I watch that scene, I feel like I just time traveled. The only thing that I will say about it is uh, after that great start, um, I do think that Shoshana's storyline is a little bit weaker than the rest of the movie. And I think some of the like subplots that it introduces later aren't quite as like good as the package as a whole. It's still up here for me. I think that this is good placement for it. It was my personal number five. So I think number four is very good for it. I think uh, Inglorious Bastards might be Tarantino's best work as a director. The performances across the board in Inglorious Bastards are pretty close to an all-time high, as well as like his clear voice being carried throughout the film. But at the same time, it, it has a more simplistic shot composition. It's not as stylized as his other films. And I think that's that's really cool as well. This might sound weird, but my least favorite thing about Inglorious Bastards are the Inglorious Bastards themselves. I kind of get it. They're almost there for like comedic relief slash action relief because the script was too slow and boring and talkity for what 
what it becomes. The, the only time the Inglorious Bastards seem important to me is in the the scene at the end where they shoot up the theater. It would have been cool if they got introduced there or something like Tarantino did chapter two of the movie right before that part and then introduced this ensemble of characters and made me more invested in them because it was my first time seeing them, not watching them track down other Nazis throughout like the first and second act of the film. And BJ Novak is distracting to me. <laughs> Eli Roth. I just want BJ Novak to like look at the camera and be like, can you believe this? I hadn't seen The Office before I saw Inglorious Bastards. So every time I would watch The Office, I would think like, oh shit, it's the guy from the end of Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> All right. So who should Steve Buscemi played in Inglorious Bastards? Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> oh, that's not a bad choice. I think that like easily it's the one that he could slip right into and i especially want to see the unrated cut where for some reason they just cut in a shot of him like fucking the translator it's so jarring i kind of hate it to be honest Murray, we are so on par with not our movie picks but yes with our buscemi picks <laughs> we should write a buscemi vehicle <laughs> my steve spotlight here is uh i think in inglorious bastards he should have played the bear jew I think Eli Roth is really distracting and it would have been really funny in that scene where they're like, here comes the bear Jew. And like the joke is it's like Eli Roth. It's not a very physically intimidating guy <laughs> and they're building it up. Like he's some sort of like monster. It would just be a hundred times funnier if it was Steve Buscemi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I also just want to quickly say, I think Michael Myers has a great little cameo in this guy. Yeah, he does. As like the British intelligence agent. Yeah, he's he's fun. I wish he stuck around for like movies longer. Like he does the same kind of sticky role in uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is one of my favorite scenes of the movie. And then he just vanishes, you know, it's like. I think he's the love guru really just like knocked him down. Michael Fassbender has a really good performance in this movie too. And Shrek 5 got canceled due to COVID. Did it actually? Yeah, the, the Illumination reboot slash sequel to Shrek has been uh, inevitably delayed, they stopped working on it entirely good a moment of silence i'm okay with that <laughs> how did dreamworks lose the rights to shrek and illumination got it they didn't they sold it whoa yeah dreamwork messed up with like i think that might be a 200 iq move by them i think they knew like shrek 5 fuck that and i think they're both under the same umbrella corporation like i think they're both subsidiaries of universe yeah they are if you go to Universal, like, theme parks, um, I think Shrek and Despicable Me are, like, neighbors. Neighbors 3. I had the DVD of the Shrek ride at Universal before I ever went there. Yeah, me too. Pretty slept on in the Shrek, the Shrek canon. It's, like, Shrek 1 and a half. Yeah, it is. I would put it above Shrek 3 and 4. So are we going to... Tarantino's number one movie as Shrek 5. No, we're going to put Tarantino's number one movie as Star Trek 4. Oh, yeah. What's do you think that's going to happen? No, it's not going to happen. And if it does, he'll just write it. He won't direct it. Yeah. Top three time, boys. Before we hop into the top three, all the vetoes have been used. Inglorious Bastards is number four. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is number five. Number six is Django Unchained. Number seven is Kill Bill. Number eight is Hateful Eight. Number nine is Death Proof. Kiernan, this is normally the part of the show 
where we ask a couple quick interview questions. Like to ask a few. Go for it. When I first met you, you and Phil were going to a bunch of like Screen Actors Guild, like pre-release screenings and actor interviews and things like that. And you've already told us some cool stories of you being on set and stuff. What's been like the coolest opportunity that's open for you in the acting world? Oh gosh. Um, I think when it comes to like those little screeners and stuff, I, I got to see the Irishman in theaters with a Q&A with De Niro afterwards. Whoa. That's powerful. Oh, so powerful. Um, also got to see uh, Little Women with the Q&A with the entire cast afterwards, which was abs- uh, just insane, like, because of, like, the star power there. In terms of, like, opportunities at the acting world, uh, so I do a lot of stand-in work. So for those unfamiliar with that, we are on set creating the scene. The actors will do a rehearsal, and then they'll go get ready for the scene while the director lights it figures out where to put the cameras and they have stand-ins who are people who are the same weight, go in the scene, run the scene, run the dialogue so the director can figure out where to put the cameras. I actually did that for pretty much the entirety of West Side Story that Spielberg just directed. For the last couple months pre-COVID, I got to work with Spielberg every day. That's so cool. An absolute dream. Um, nicest, nicest guy. And it was just so cool to just kind of have a moment of, oh my gosh, like you you can only do stand-in work when you're in SAG. You know, you're standing there watching like one of the greatest directors troubleshoot how to light and frame a scene. So not only like really cool, but also just learned a lot, you know? Yeah, that sounds way more valuable than being in film school. (laughs) It honestly was. So I went to Florida State. Like I know what I'm doing. So I'm like watching him. I'm like, oh, we should do this. And then he was like, "Ah, blah, 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 crane shot. You're like, what? It's such a, and it would just work every time, obviously. Just out of curiosity, uh, how tall are you and how much do you weigh? Because I'm going to try to grow that tall, get get in shape to be the next greatest standard. <laughs> so I am uh, 5'8", sometimes 5'9", if I'm feeling uh, like I'm wearing the right shoes and I'm trying to get money. Uh, sometimes 5'7", mostly 5'8", though, and uh, 155. Oh, sweet. I'm like there already. I just need to grow two inches. So are you like the same height as like a famous actor? I, I've stood in for a couple cool people. Um, I don't know if you know the musician Jack Antonoff. Um, I was his stand-in on High Fidelity. I, I've done some things on Maisel. I'm like the same height as as the husband. And uh, probably like some Broadway people on um, The Plot Against America and everything. Uh, at the moment, though, there hasn't... Oh, I, duh. I, I, I've done some things with Ben Platt as well. That would probably be like the the closest lookalike trying nothing's filming right now what is happening right now is every uh person who wants to break out as a writer has been writing all quarantine and uh you're one of my go-to guys here in new york for sharing scripts and coming up with ideas and all that kind of cool stuff uh what are some cool projects you've worked on in quarantine yeah it's it's been interesting i think i went into quarantine with this like heck yeah gonna work on everything and and i have i've had to balance it out we were talking a little about this. Uh, as of late, I felt like almost a guilt and a pressure that I have to be working on stuff. So I've been like trying to take a little bit of a creative pause, but I've written a couple short stories during uh, this quarantine. Ashed out um, in, an entire stage play, actually. Um, a vehicle that I, I usually don't work with, but I had an idea that for me, like stage just made sense for this. That was really cool. Uh, sent it to you. We read it. We talked about it. Um, it's pretty much it. Pretty much, uh, the it, it was pretty time consuming. It's a it's a weird yeah, but it's it's been fun. Um, it's on like it's second and a half iteration right now, but I'm getting there, I think. 
Yeah, no, it's it's great. I can't wait to talk about it more when we see, uh, you know, just more come of it. I think it's an awesome script. And I don't normally read stage plays, so getting the opportunity to do that was awesome. I guess my final question for you, Kiernan, would be what are your, your kind of career goals or ambitions or maybe just some life things you hope to accomplish in the rest of 2020? It seems like it was looking like the year of opportunity and then that door got shut in our face. I know I've kind of had to mix up some things and roads for myself. And I was just wondering what other uh, great things you have planned for the rest of the year. Yeah. So kind of long-term, it's funny that um, y'all invited me on this episode because I think Tarantino is someone I try to emulate in career trajectory of it would be so awesome to be in a place. I mean, obviously this isn't a super original dream, but to be able to write, direct and produce your own kind of content. You're really in the feet. Yeah. No, no, not that part. More hands, more uh, hand shots. Oh, no. Earlobes. Um, I know a couple hand models, so hit me up. Until we're there, I think it's been cool to kind of take a pause, flesh out some passion projects, work on that. Um, and I would really like to, in particular, with that stage play I was talking about, as well as maybe like one or two other features and shorts, uh, do some kind of like more formalized sit-down read-throughs that can be shared with people via social media and, and just kind of see what opportunity and networking can come from that. Um, I worked on that Netflix show, The Politician. There are a lot of a lot of a lot of people on that show that have connections um, and such a friendly cast. Uh, I've been able to keep in touch with some people that, yeah, definitely kind of reach out to them and see if they can give any help. I'd say that'd be some of the goals for the year. But yeah, definitely kind of scaling back, uh, changing like networking strategies and whatnot, but uh, staying optimistic and just having fun with it, man, you know, like kind of enjoy it because uh, it is a unique opportunity to, to do some passion projects. All right. So now that all the vetoes are gone, we're just doing a good old fashioned debate here for the top three. Uh, does anyone have a preferred uh, number three in this scenario? I think this is Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say Pulp Fiction. No. Mm-mm. No. I would have said Jackie Brown. I'd be interested to have that debate. I would too. Reservoir Dogs is one of the greatest directorial debuts, but it is a movie that is extremely limited in its in its scope. And I think that helps the movie. I think it is a really, really great film, but it rides its, uh, in, its uh, inspirations and its homages on its sleeve almost a little too much. In my opinion, the story isn't unique the way the story that is told and the way that it's told is unique. Reservoir Dogs was probably my favorite Tarantino film for a very long time. But as I've aged as a person and as I've watched his movies more and more, I've found some that really kind of elevate upon every rewatch, whereas Reservoir Dogs stays consistent for me. I knew it was one I was going to have in my top three, and actually while making this, it slipped out. So that's just kind of where I'm at on this. I really liked uh, Reservoir Dogs. It just felt like a very, like, I understood, like, premise, like, right off the bat. I was into it. Um, Really liked all the characters. I was really interested, like, who the rat was. And once we got to figure out who the rat was, I wanted to find out how it was all done. And I loved the uh, montage, yeah. Progression of that. I just think when it comes to a three-act structure, this is one of Tarantino's best. Personally... I really like Reservoir Dogs. Spoiler alert, it's still my favorite Tarantino movie. There's just 
no movie in his filmography that I think has really scratched the same itch for me. Like, I wished that The Hateful Eight would, and it kind of did, but even as, like, one of my personal favorites, I couldn't put it in the top five. Reservoir Dogs still stands out as unique to me, and I understand the take that Pulp Fiction is, like, the popular favorite, but for me... It's not as solid all around as Reservoir Dogs. I think that the first half of the Gold Watch uh, chapter isn't really that great for me. The Christopher Walken sequence is great. Like, his whole monologue is wonderful. But then you have the whole thing with Butch taking the cab home with that chick who asks him what it's like to kill somebody. And then his weird girlfriend that talks about pot bellies and blueberry pancakes. It's still up here for me. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, Pulp Fiction number seven. But like... I like Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs more, and that's just where I'm at. I think what's really impressive about Reservoir Dogs is uh, his kind of stylizing of it. You know, there's so many things that are happening in the background on how colors are laid out, how things are framed that tell the story like before they play out. I think that's like a lot of cool little subtleties that makes a Tarantino movie a Tarantino movie. You know, it's fun to kind of look for them. It's fun to kind of talk about those weird stories, the behind the scenes, the like delay of production because Uma Thurman's pregnant for Kill Bill. Like he does bold things that a lot of other people wouldn't do. Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction have a place for me story wise. Um, yeah, it's just a little higher. I just I can't look at you with a straight face and say Reservoir Dogs or Jackie Brown are better movies than Pulp Fiction. I agree, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree to that statement a lot. Oh, I agreed. This is what's interesting about Tarantino, though. I think when we get up towards the top of it, it gets a little less debatable. That's kind of where I was at when making this list to begin with, because like, if you compare Tarantino films to other films of that same genre, they stand out so much. But when you compare them to themselves... It's like really, really difficult. I would say I don't like as much in Reservoir Dogs that exists better in Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction. Tarantino was really, really smart in adapting script for Jackie Brown and then even smarter in making Pulp Fiction in the way that the story gets told. The best sequence in Reservoir Dogs, in my opinion, is the the jump back montage to see how Tim Roth's character became this rat. And that was the part that was the most fascinating to me. Pulp Fiction does that with every single one of the main characters throughout the course of the film and tells them out of order. So to me alone, that is more ambitious and more of what I liked in Reservoir Dogs elevated higher. Uh, with Jackie Brown, it's so similar to Reservoir Dogs in genre and style but where Jackie Brown elevates for me, you get to see the heist. And not only do you get to see that heist or see that big event, that big crime, that exchange of money, you get to see it from three different characters' perspectives. It's just like reading a book. You get different narrators. You get different points of view on the same thing happening. Whereas in Reservoir Dogs, it's all word of mouth and it's by characters all did the same exact thing. And it's not told in an entirely different way. It's kind of just, this is what happened. How did the police find out so quick? One of us is a rat. And it's so matter of fact, I think it makes it a very tight movie and it makes it one of Tarantino's most accessible up there with Django hasn't gotten better for me over time. He's made other better movies. And I'm interested to see who you make 
who you cast Steve Buscemi as in Reservoir Dogs. Um, <laughs> He's already perfectly cast in Reservoir Dogs. I would love to see a revival, like a stage revival of Reservoir Dogs. That's a one-man show of just Steve Buscemi. I'm excited for that. Bold. Tarantino as Tarantino without Pulp Fiction. Just plain and simple. I, I just think that is the movie that created this notion of him as a very particular artist. Trust me, I love Jackie Brown. I love Reservoir Dogs. And they are his style. But like he's running and firing on all cylinders in Pulp Fiction. And kind of what Nate was saying with what's so great in Jackie Brown and the heist scene, different the emotions are from each perspective of each character in like how they're approaching the heist, um, what's going on for them personally. You know, it's crazy that Buscemi's been in as little movies with um, Tarantino, but also the fact that De Niro's only in that one is insane to me. And his parking lot scene is phenomenal. It is fun. Yeah, Bridget Fonda. She's actually really... Uh, but she she brings a line, elevates beyond what that character could have been. I mean, probably through Tarantino's script, but also through her act. It's also, I think Jackie Brown might be like his smallest kind of ensemble cast. I think it's about on par with Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. I had him placed as Beaumont as Chris Tucker's character. Oh, yeah, that would have been cool. That's a good one. Yeah, he would have died in the opening scene. Everyone would have thought he would have been a main character since it was, you know, the guy from Reservoir Dogs that everyone remembers. Gosh, yeah, it would be like a Drew Barrymore. I'm pretty sure whatever is, like, considered canon to the, like, quote-unquote Tarantino-verse, the theory that I'm, like, cultivating right now as we discuss this is that Pulp Fiction, his character there, the Buddy Holly impersonator at the restaurant, is Mr. Pink in Witness Protection. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's some canon. It's real shit, boys. I don't really think I have an argument. My placement for Reservoir Dogs at my number one is a personal favorite pick, much like uh, Josh's for Django at number one. Uh, Reservoir Dogs just has a lot more that I enjoy as a whole package, whereas there are parts of Pulp Fiction that I don't enjoy quite as much. I like all three of the stories, but there are aspects of the first two that I'm not really a huge fan of. I think that the third one's great, and I think that the opening is great. I don't know. Some of the stuff with Lance, Eric Stoltz's character, I'm kind of just like, eh, yeah, this is kind of just happening. And like I said before, with the gold watch, like all the stuff with uh, Bruce Willis and like his girlfriend and the cab driver, I'm like, I kind of don't care. Yeah. But, you know. Josh, what are what are your takes here? Pulp Fiction is just so iconic and it um it's my number two on my list. I just think like the like the positives in Pulp Fiction outweigh like any like positives in the other two films on this have uh if we're talking about reservoir dogs i really like reservoir dogs it was my number four yes it was my number four on my list so both of these movies were in my top four but the reason why i had pulp fiction over it was just based on there was just when pulp fiction like hits you with a good scene it hits you with a great scene Reservoir Dogs might be a little more consistent. I kind of agree with Jory. There are parts of Pulp Fiction maybe I don't care about as much. When Pulp Fiction succeeds, it fucking kicks ass. It's really the soundtrack that does it for me, mostly. Oh, for Reservoir Dogs? No, 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 for Pulp Fiction. We, I feel like we kind of haven't really been talking about the soundtracks on these movies. I did say Django has the worst soundtrack out of all of these movies. Yeah, which let's not talk that much about that. But um, I really don't think any of these movies has a bad soundtrack. Like like we were saying, like all nine of these movies like are great movies that everybody should absolutely see. All nine of these people on this panel included like the soundtracks too. like 
oh my god, banger after banger. Even Hateful Eight ended up as number eight on our list, one away from the bottom, has an Ennio Morricone original score, and also uses uh, tracks that he wrote for other movies, like... Uh, that was Academy Award winning, right? Should have been, I think so. I'm I'm 90% sure. That's the best part of the movie, for sure. I just love this little tidbit ever since I learned it. There's a, the track that starts playing when um, Kurt Russell's character and uh, the driver are being poisoned and they're like spewing out blood. It's called Bestiality, and it was originally supposed to be in John Carpenter's The Thing, and it just never was. No kidding. Yeah, and it's a great song, too. I'm fine with uh, Reservoir Dogs going at number three here. The top three, I feel like I really can't argue anymore. Like, these top three are immaculate. Yeah. I mean, the one, I think the big final piece to place is Buscemi in Pulp Fiction. And I think it's clearly he's Lance. He's already there. But I would also make him Lance. <laughs> All right. Alden, we placed Reservoir Dogs at number three. What do you think should be number two? I guess Jackie Brown. I agree, Alden. I agree. Yeah, to me, it's a little bit of a no-brainer if it's between these two. I had Pulp Fiction at my number three, but... This whole argument is very Tarantino. We've been arguing, arguing, and then now there's just a very tonal shift, and we're in agreement, and it's ending. So who are we shooting? Uh, Me, preferably. <laughs> preferably? Well, wow, all right. I'm sorry, Alden. Alden, what, so when we started this list, you said that you saw all the movies, but then you admitted... I did not see all the movies. Which movies did you see? Uh, everything but Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs. Oh, shit. <laughs> Wait, then why did, why did you shit on me for putting Jackie Brown so low? I was joining a bandwagon, one. He just wanted Django outside of the top five. Django Unchained was my number seven, and I put it at number seven, and you guys kept carrying it. Alden, you did good. I guess we know about our co-hosts here, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it, for me, I kind of have like a love-hate relationship with Jackie Brown, or at least I did. The first time I saw this this movie, uh, it was right after I had watched like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs for the first time. Jackie Brown, to me, as like a, a I'm going to say 12-year-old, sucked so much in comparison to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. But every time I rewatch Jackie Brown, there's something I appreciate more and more. And the most recent time I watched Jackie Brown, uh, three or four days ago, what really stood out to me was Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. It's probably his best performance. Oh, yeah. He plays this kind of like jokey kind of con man type, but he plays it so well and he doesn't play it like normal Samuel L. Jackson, where he's just screaming motherfucker all the time and being this bombastic character. He's kind of like an idiot, not fully aware that he's an idiot but is starting to like think he is what do you mean in kingsman he had a lisp he's really different in that <laughs> yeah but he was also extremely smart <laughs> i see him as his character in in jackie brown but in every other movie i see him in i'm like oh there's samuel L. jackson you know what it is man. even in django when he's in full character makeup and is playing like an 80 year old house slave you know what it is, Nate? It's the ponytail. The rat tail, balding ponytail really does it for him. He should have that in the next Marvel movie. I agree. I was actually kind of hoping he'd have a hairpiece like that in uh, in Captain Marvel. Because <laughs> they made it set in the 90s, and I was like, oh boy, he's going to have a terrible hairpiece. He's going to have a mullet. 90s Samuel L. Jackson was the thing I was most excited about for Captain Marvel, and I still didn't want to see it. <laughs> Jackie Brown, number two, fantastic movie, very slept on in uh, Tarantino's filmography. And that leaves what everybody knew going into this, 
Pulp Fiction number one. I mean, did we know that though? I was a little worried. I wasn't worried. I just hoped that it wouldn't be. It's well-deserved, all the praise that Pulp Fiction gets. So not the movie itself is boring, but the take that it's the best one. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. The take is boring. But Fellowship of the Ring could win the Fantasy Tournament, and The Incredibles could win the Pixar ranking, but God forbid, Pulp Fiction, a fantastic movie, wins this ranking. Yeah, because I actually care about all of these movies, Josh. I didn't want Who Framed Roger Rabbit to take the fantasy bracket over Fellowship of the Ring. Well, I did, Joey. I did. I kind of did too, I think. <laughs> I just wanted to end that episode. Hey, Kiernan, out of, uh, out of curiosity, because it's related to the topic at hand, and they're produced by the same uh, infamous brothers, Uh-oh. what's your favorite... Uh, lord of the rings movie so i've been watching the afi top 100 movies um in no particular order just trying to see the ones i haven't and fellowship is on the afi top 100 movies of all time i agree personally i have to go two towers that's mine too um acknowledging all three of them like you've got an academy award winner an afi top 100 winner and then just one that i really really like so and that's the one with best uh, medieval fight battle scene in cinematic history for sure all right well this is the part in the episode where we all say our own personal lists my number nine was the hateful eight my number eight was death proof my number seven Django Unchained. Number six, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number five, Kill Bill. Number four, Reservoir Dogs. Number three, Jackie Brown. Number two, Inglorious Bastards. And number one, Pulp Fiction. I'll go next. Don't cry in front of Craig. Number nine, Death, Death Proof. Number eight, The Hateful Eight. Number seven, Jackie Brown. Number six, Inglorious Bastards. Number five, Kill Bill. Number four, Reservoir Dogs. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two, Pulp Fiction. Number one, Django. Don't worry, Josh. I agree with a lot of your takes. <laughs> I appreciate how high you had Once Upon a Time. Yeah, same. I appreciate how high you had Django. I might get there in 20 years. There might be a time where I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's better than I do a year after its release. Because a lot of Tarantino's movies grow on me. I think it's going to grow. I feel like once we're in our twilight years, then we'll relate to it a lot more. <laughs> Wait, is it sad I'm already relating to Rick Dalton then? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, Josh, you're an alcoholic and you need to stop partying for three days on end <laughs> you need to watch kill bill 2 you need to send landon the swwe files it's been like a day number nine death proof number eight once upon a time in hollywood number seven the hateful eight number six kill bill number five inglorious bastards number four django unchained number three pulp fiction number two jackie brown number one reservoir dogs I, I, I respect Jory's list a lot, actually. Yeah, it's bold. It's really bold. Yeah, me too. That's why I'm here. He is the, he is the bold one. Get ready for the Reservoir Dogs homage for the intro to the next episode. Kiernan, what's your list? Number nine, Hateful Eight. Number eight, Death Proof. Number seven, Django. Number six, Kill Bill. Number five, Inglorious Bastards. Number four, Reservoir Dogs. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two, Jackie Brown. Number one, Pulp Fiction. I'm telling you, Once Upon a Time is going to sneak up on you. Yeah, maybe when I'm old like you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> maybe four rooms will sneak up on me also. Yeah, did you guys know I'm 56, by the way? I'm kidding. I'm 25. <laughs> <laughs> did you guys know that Rick Dalton is based on me? <laughs> did you know I just turned 21 a month ago? <laughs> yeah, literally the other day I was hanging out with my friend and he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and I made margaritas and I was like, are we cosplaying Once Upon a Time in Hollywood right now? 
Dude, you and me were outside on your uh, on your front porch smoking cigars in the street. I'm like, am I a 67 year old Italian man? Like, I live in I live in the East Village on 12th Street, and we literally just put chairs on the street and we're smoking cigars, and we looked like we were that time. We're like, ah, you're not driving us out of this neighborhood. Were you wearing tracksuits? I wish we could have coordinated that, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Nate has the Sopranos poly hair going, actually. <laughs> thanks hey tone i'm telling you those doors are made of wood alden what's your list man nine is death proof eight the hateful eight seven django unchained six jackie brown five inglorious bastards four once upon a time in hollywood three kill bill two reservoir dogs and one pulp fiction i didn't get to hear your take on kill bill earlier i know you were disappointed it got placed at number seven but did you want to like speak on it a little bit i felt like we missed you there so the biggest thing i liked in it was the change in style so frequently like it went from i don't i don't i don't even know how to describe some of the um scenes but it going from black and white kind of noir esque to an anime which was kind of weird and then back into like a um i would say a 60s kind of kung fu movie and it does stuff like that throughout both of these less so in, in part two or volume two but I, I just i really like it and i just finished watching it so yeah nate i know you were talking about um death proof having like the greatest action scene in a tarantino movie but i really think that the crazy 88 sequence in kill bill volume one is a strong contender I agree. I agree. I certainly agree. I would have that at number two. I just think the physical stunt work in the climax of Death Proof is is more uh, kind of ambitious and impressive. With Kill Bill, the most impressive thing about that coordination for me is one it took them two weeks to film and two they built that entire restaurant as a set with like transparent floors and like uh, you know, holes in, in like a, a for an, an invisible fourth wall, like camera movements and different shots that they wanted. Because uh, Tarantino is a guy who typically likes to shoot on location. He's not huge on set work, but he like wrote that wrote that scene and was like, this is going to have to be shot on a soundstage. And it, it looks awesome. I think if you were to like isolate that scene from the movie, it has potential to be like the best scene out of all of his films. Yeah, honestly, everything that happens at House of Four Leaves is so good. Like you were talking about, like with the missing ceilings and fourth walls, like anything with like the, the five, six, seven, eights, I believe the band is called when they're like playing I'm Blue and it's like her like taking off like the biker outfit and getting ready to like go ham on these dudes like wild yeah it's also interesting to note like i'd be interested to see which of these movies we'd seen recently affected where we put them on the list because i think we've all acknowledged that pretty much all of these movies as soon as you see it and walk away you're like that's one of his bests uh i think where tarantino movies are the best is when you have some distance from them and just kind of give yourself an opportunity to kind of like digest it a little do you know what i mean i think the ones that stick with me long term are the ones i have placed in my top three because all of these like i remember Django ending and being like oh my gosh it's one of his best and then it just kind of it's time i don't i can't i can't relate for me it's everything above six it's like six and above for me because like kill bill and inglorious bastards are right there for me too once upon a time if i might rewatch it it could change but i had a really good rewatch of once upon a time i rewatched it over the weekend or no yeah 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 i did the days blur together they really are but I did rewatch it with a group of people and um, the other people in the room also saw it before. So, and we all just 
had a really solid rewatch and we talked about the movie pretty thoroughly after and I don't know it made me realize how much I do like that movie because it went from a six five on my list to a three and I think when you throw out what you're expecting it to be and you've seen it you know what's coming you get to you just pick up all like the beautiful subtlety of it also going with that I don't want to like talk shit on once upon a time too much again but I feel like um talking about how like oh you don't really have to know these people for like the story to make sense it's a small scene but like the playboy mansion scene in the beginning where uh damien is like pointing out everybody explaining all of the like drama that's going on in hollywood at the time i feel like it's kind of wasted with where the movie goes i I love that scene a lot and i was hoping that movie would have a lot more like it but i respect where tarantino decided to take it the one thing i will say uh I mean, I really wanted to come into this with like my best frame of reference. I had already seen all these movies, most of them multiple times. And so when I went and rewatched them, the thing that I felt like I was lacking the most was some sort of like group presence, like Tarantino movies, watching these and then like seeing what's happening with box office releases and where the future of cinema is going really bummed me out because I don't know. Even if I didn't, even if I was too young to see a lot of these movies in theaters, watching them at a friend's house or watching them with like a group of friends, always so much better because there's like, there might be that one thing that you miss, a scene that you don't really find funny, and then someone else starts laughing or someone else like points that out, and then you immediately like figure it out and point it out. And it's like, these movies need to be watched with a group. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I got yeah. kind of sad watching all nine of these movies. 10, if you se- separate the Kill Bill movies over the course of like seven or eight days, like it was a little depressing. There's nothing like seeing a Tarantino movie in a packed theater with like movie losers. Cause like, like I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and it was this, they were like screaming, cheering, jeering, not in a way that like you missed anything, but like when the action happened, the, the audience had such a reaction to it that it was just so heightened in such a good way. Our group list, number nine, Death Proof. Number eight, Hateful Eight. Number seven, Kill Bill. Number six, Django Unchained. Number five, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number four, Inglorious Bastards. Number three, Reservoir Dogs. Number two, Jackie Brown. And number one, Pulp Fiction. Cool. Love it. I think I misspoke earlier when I asked, was asked which ones I haven't seen, and I think I forgot to mention Death Proof. No, you said you didn't see Death Proof. Okay. Just making sure. I mean, dude, it has future live-action Ahsoka Tano, Rosario Dawson in the second half of the movie. I can't believe you missed out on it. And it's got Cars. It's your two favorite things. It's not Cars 2. It's way better than Cars 2. It's way better than all three Cars movies. Alden, you have to do a Cars 2 retrospective because I oh feel like God. we're all missing something. <laughs> you have to do a Cars sequels retrospective because you had not just Cars 2, but also Cars 3 in your top 10. And because Alyssa and I liked Coco, it got completely swept away. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have much of a defense other than I like them. Interesting. I'm not even going to get into that because, yeah. Uh, For Cars 3, probably. For Cars 2... It might be difficult, but I I could work something up. I think that's what Pixar said when they were challenged to make a Cars 2. They said, uh, it could be difficult, but we'll figure it out. 
I remember losing faith in animated Disney movies as a kid because I saw Bolton theaters and I saw the trailer for Cars 2 right before it. And I was like, oh, no, I felt like Stan Marsh when he was going through like puberty and South Park where like everything looks like shit. That was such a strange year because I remember I think the day that trailer dropped on like the Internet was the same day Pirates Stranger Tides did. And it was such a dark day for Disney. Thank you, everyone, for watching this episode of Duel of the Takes. Please be sure to check out our podcast if you're watching the YouTube video, or if you're watching the YouTube video, be sure to check out our podcast. we got new episodes every Thursday. Next week, we're talking about Lego video games, I believe. Yeah, we're ranking all, or we're doing a bracket for every video game based off of Lego. So <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Thank you, thank you, Kiernan, for being here. You were a great guest. We'll let you know how you do in our guest tier list down the line. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Jory's going to put me at number one. No, he's not. He's going to put Django at number one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Duel of the Takes. If you haven't already, check out The Duel of the Takes YouTube channel, where we have highlights of every episode, bonus lists, hot takes, as well as comedy sketches and more. Also, come check out our Instagram. We do interactive stories, daily movie and pop culture memes, and more. Next week, we shift gears, and we'll be doing a LEGO video game madness bracket. And as always, if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.